Hi, this is Paul. And as, as some of you know, when I travel about, sometimes I bump into interesting people. And it was at an Ian McGilchrist event that I went to in the UK that, that this fellow came up to me and introduced himself. And we just began a conversation. And I said, boy, I'd love to have you on the channel and have you talk about the kinds of stuff that you know and you think. And um, so now after all this time, here we are able to do it. So Andy, welcome. Welcome to the channel. Thank you very much, Paul. It's great to be here and great to see you again. I remember back at that uh, Ian McGilchrist event, you were sitting many rows ahead of me and I thought, I recognize the back of that head. <laughs> I recognize the back of a head, but then it was your profile. And when you turn around, I thought, yes, that's Paul. <laughs> Apologies for making a beeline for you after, but I thought no, I wasn't... I I love it when people come up to to meet me and introduce themselves. And there there weren't that many people at the McGilchrist event, so it was it was perfect for that. So, mm. um, well, let's let's start with you, Andy. I mean, I got a little brief introduction to you there at the event, but we've got a little bit more time now and a little bit more focus. So, uh, let's start with you. Let's start with um, who are you and uh, how on earth are, did we get here? That's a, a nice big open question to get us <laughs> kicked off. Um, so, yeah, my name's Andy Wilkins, as you can probably tell from my very British accent, and you gave it away a bit when you were saying you met me over in London at the Ian McGilchrist event. Yes, I'm I'm UK-based. Um, brought up in the north of England, a small little market town called Knaresborough in the, in the uh, county of Yorkshire. So a nice little uh, sort of rural upbringing, which we, we could explore. Came to the big city, London, to go to university, uh, which was a massive change of uh, experience. Back in the days, of course, where there was no email and no mobile phones, so you were truly on your own in a big city at 18 years old, and that was uh, one hell of an experience. Yeah. Uh, I've been here ever since, uh, doing a lot of work now in looking at Big picture things. Uh, that's a, a, th a theme, I think, that we'll explore. Uh, largely focusing on, well, the main area of focus is really looking at the long-term future of health and healthcare. And that's the, the current big picture project that I'm spending most of my time on, uh, trying to really provoke people to think beyond the short-term lots of little silos that health finds itself in, the fact that our healthcare systems are really not addressing the full scale of our healthcare crisis. People are, we're spending all this money, but we're getting sicker. So I've been doing a lot of work looking at underneath, why is that the case and how might we think differently and how might we use a new vision of the future to inspire more systemic change towards something better? And then trying my hardest to kind of poke people in the axioms who are responsible for <laughs> thinking about healthcare policy and running different parts of the healthcare system so, so to think beyond their current paradigm into something bigger and better that can truly make possible things like human flourishing which i think we all agree we need more of yeah even if it's even if it's not always easy to define and mm -hmm. when we get into when we get into situations of conflict figuring out because that's when flourishing I just, we have this ladies Bible study that happens at church and most of them are now in their 80s, some of them well into their 80s. And so, you know, I've, I've been, I've known these women for 25 years and, you know, my mother's about their age. And so you, you watch 
as you know strength decreases and as support increases and as a pastor you very quickly recognize that the many of these people many of the people that are in my church they go to the doctor they go to doctors every week some for some of them are spent so much time in doctor's offices and in hospitals that it's, I mean, they spend as much time in there as they used to spend in their office when they worked for the state. And so, and then, then there's all of these questions and debates about flourishing. And so, but let's, let's take this train way back. Cause I know that whenever you get into these conversations, people, you know, issues are going to be raised. And so part of the reason I do so much bio is because if you come in here talking like an expert in our current context already, just because you're an expert, some of the audience will say, I'm going to listen to him because I'm an expert. The other side of the audience is going to say, I'm not listening to any expert that any screen puts in front of me. So let's talk a little bit more about your growing up. And mm -hmm. um, so you say you grew up in a rural area. Yes. What, what is that? Now, I took a train from Edinburgh to Oxford, my last trip to England. And it was fun seeing how many sheep there are in your country. <laughs> yes. I mean, tell me about tell me about your roots. Okay. Well, if you were passing from Edinburgh down to Oxford, you might have passed through somewhere like York on the way through. Or, I don't remember. Um, or Leeds or somewhere yeah, like yeah. City. Yeah, so Nasborough in, in Yorkshire is if you imagine the, the the fatter bit of Wales and 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 the east of England, then it gets smaller and narrower as it heads up towards Scotland. It's in that narrow part of the, the neck, if you like, of, of England, the north of England, where Yorkshire sits on the right hand side. And it's the biggest county in the UK, but it's also biggest by virtue of the fact it's the most rural. So there's a lot of farmland and a lot of sheep. And those who know their history know that Britain was quite famous for its wool way back in the day. Yes. Uh, there are a lot of sheep and uh, they live very well there. We have very green fields with lots of rich pasture. So the cows and and, and the sheep live a, a good life in Yorkshire. And I was brought up in this small market town. It's grown a bit from when I was there. It's probably about seven or 8,000. It's now about 15,000. And when I was growing up, there were fields on two sides. So sheep and cows were were my neighbors. Um, and so being brought brought up in a small little market town in the north of England was a very different experience. You know, looking back on it now, it was my normal, but uh, neighbours would wander in and out of each other's houses. Uh, you would get a sort of knock on the living room door and the neighbour would already be in your house saying, well, I've just brought this round for you. Uh, or could you come and babysit the kids tonight? Or So it was it was from a different era. Mm. But uh, it it was a small, very friendly kind of market town. It had a small market square, and there was a market there every year. Uh, there was one big school there that I, I went to. My father was a teacher there, a maths teacher. Uh, so I, I got to see my father in the classroom as well as at home, so there was no escaping mm -hmm. homework. But all in all, it was a, a, a very nice sort of rural, small town upbringing, which... Uh, Gave me a, an experience of life as community oriented, very friendly, but incredibly white. I must admit, looking back on it now, uh, but it also gave me a, 
an opportunity to test and try out many things. I was mm. always seeking to sort of taste life. So mm. I learned the clarinet and then I learned the piano and then I taught myself the saxophone and the guitar. And I was all in all these musical groups. Uh, I wanted to try my hand at sports. So I was in the football team and the cricket team and the basketball team. So my life was always full of events and things to go to and groups to be part of. So it was uh, a, a great time to feel alive. I think mm. I feel immersed and embedded in so many different groups and so many different activities. And uh, it, it was it was a very special time, very special time. And what kinds of now you 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 went you went off to university? What kinds of subject? Why did you go to university? Now now it's interesting because part of why I ask the questions I do is that if you're in a rural area and you're a teacher's son, you're in a little bit different category than the farmer's kid. Yes, and so um, and so you're from a family that obviously valued education because your father was was in it. Um, what kinds of besides the sports and what kind and the music, what kinds of things did you gravitate towards, especially when you began to think about university? So you're right to point out my father was very, very much uh, an intellectual, I would say. He was uh, he was the head of mathematics at the school. He was uh, brought up on uh, very much in a sort of physics based way of thinking uh and he, there was always intellectual conversation in the house and he it was very much oriented to what is true like how do you know if you're going to make a claim justify it like let's hear the rationale for it and we'd have all these conversations about the origin of the universe and all, all these kind of questions conversations you probably wouldn't normally have in in a household but uh, my father was very keen to sort of get us to think through one mm. of the things he always used to say to me is that Andy you're going to hear a lot of things in your life um, most of it is going to be bullshit and some of it is going to be gold now your job is to figure out which is which <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> um so there was always this sort of expectation, I think, from him that the journey to university would be a natural progression. As long as you got your grades, that's where you should go. Mm. And quite honestly, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. My father was very much sort of maths, physics, chemistry, sort of the, the, the material sciences. And, uh, but, but there was part of me that was interested in people. And so I, I sort of rationalized that, that I would go and study physiology and psychology an opportunity came up to to study that so i went i went to london to study that with the possibility that i might shift into medicine so mm. that was the uh that, those are the subjects i chose uh, right. how does the body work and how does the mind work yeah yeah it was good grounding for what subsequently i've gone on to sort of think yeah. about study yeah. even further uh and therefore came down to london and and study those topics okay and what did you get your degree in? So I got it in uh, a combined one, which was human physiology with uh, with, with psychology as, okay. as a second subject. And I thought I would be going into medicine, but that didn't happen. 
this this I think these conversations are so so I have a son right now who has graduated. He's got a degree in robotics from one of the best robotics public universities in California and he's currently living at home and he he had a job offer from one place but turned it down and he's trying to you know and I I've watched now he's my fifth child. I've watched all of my kids try and make this make this transition from university into this strange larger world and and sometimes you think oh you get a degree in this you'll just go into this but it's never quite so simple no it it isn't um and it was it was a huge culture shock for me coming mm -hmm. to london from a small little rural town um there there in in london we have these or we used to have these little books called a to z which had the entire map of london in it and you would find the right page and you'd figure out where you were and use this as a, as a kind of atlas to walk around the streets. And, and I remember arriving here being absolutely scared shitless that I would get lost and in this concrete jungle and I'd be there forever and I would sort of die of starvation on the streets. So to walk around with this atlas that was like your little Bible, like to not get lost in this plethora of streets that went on forever. Um, but uh, it, it was also... A fascinating time because it was the time also of the IRA. So there were oh. bombs going off and people dying. And my family were obviously worried about that. There were okay. the time of the riots as well. So there were riots occurring occasionally in London. And of course, there was a huge multicultural kind of experience to walk into, that, which was very different from that which I brought was brought up in. So it was a, a, a big culture shock to find yourself in the middle of this metropolis with all this excitement, danger, and difference all sort of mixed together that sort of hit you in the face as a, mm. as a new experience. And I think being 18 is, is a time where you, you're you not well-formed enough to kind of know what you like or not, but you, you're kind right. of drinking it all in and you adapt to this new environment. And yeah. It's it's kind of what I did, and I'm still here in London. <laughs> <laughs> so so physiology and psychology. What was what was your first real adult career job then out of university, and 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 how did that come about? I I was a, a musician as well. So my, my my first attempt at a job was. I formed a rock band while I was at university and I had dreams of being a mega rock star. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was dreaming big, even from the, from yeah. the game. Uh, so we formed a band. We used to play at university. We used to play in the bar. We get free drinks. So it wasn't, it wasn't a sort of a lucrative career. It was if you wanted to drink, of course, but, um, but then after after university, I thought, no, I love this. I lo There's something about writing your music and playing and performing in front of others. And if they appreciate it, there's a, there's a buzz about that that was addictive. And I thought, wow, yes, uh, let, let, me, let me try and do this. So for about 18 months, we were doing gigs around the country, trying to write more songs, get a, get a deal. Alas, it didn't happen, and the, the dream slowly died. We were clinging on to it, hoping that we you know one more gig and we, uh, luck would change, and then boom, <laughs> as a sudden collapse into like we got no money. This isn't going to happen. The dream has to die, and this painful realization that that dream of mega stardom and influencing the world through your music was 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 just not going to happen. And it it 
probably heralded the most difficult time in my life. But mm. when I look back at it, probably the most formative one. Um, where I was living in London in a shared accommodation with a, a bunch of others who were also struggling, uh, we were told when the band decided to, to, to call it a day that we had one week to get out of this property. And I was absolutely clean out of money. Mm -hmm. uh, my father, I love him to bits, but he was quite a strong disciplinarian. And the idea of me trying to do this was something that he thought was absolutely ridiculous and stupid. And why would I waste my life on doing something like this? And why don't I get a proper job? Uh, and I had a little bit too much pride to go crawling back to Yorkshire with on my hands and knees saying, you're so right, Dad. Um, so I was faced like, what the hell do I do? And it precluded, well, it, it caused the most difficult phase of my life. I ended up out on the street with my guitar and a black bag, black plastic bag of bin liner of some clothes. And I ended up in a squat <laughs> with sleeping on the floorboards with other people in the squat who were like doing drugs and losing themselves. And there I was with my guitar, my bag of clothes, wondering what the hell just happened. Sounds like the prodigal son. <laughs> <laughs> Went to the far off country, squandered what your father had given you. And here you are with a, a plastic, black plastic bag and a guitar with the drug addicts and homeless. Exactly. <laughs> it was looking back one of the most incredibly formative periods because it was a time where you know I'd, I'd wander out into the streets and if you did meet people so well who are you like what do you do you know where do you come from where do you work what I don't have anything I don't have a job I don't have money I don't and this like I have nothing this it felt like the whole world was going on out there and I was kind of cut off from it really cut off like existentially cut off and didn't know how to connect with with the world. I didn't even have money to get a, even a basic suit to go to an interview. I was just left in the in, in the sort of t-shirt and jeans that I had. And I remember, you know, there's that sort of expression from uh, um, uh, forget the the philosopher now Nietzsche that you. When I was there sort of lying on the floor late at night and it was all dark and you could hear the drug addicts going off on one, this sort of sense of who the hell am I? Am I really a nothing? Is this what it's come to? Am I mm. a nothing? And it was that sort of staring into the abyss. Mm. Have the abyss stare deeply back into you, that cold dread that maybe I was also going to fall into this abyss. You could hear other people in the other room, I have some drugs, Andy. No, 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 no. no. I can't do, and it it caused me to go through a, a period of of existential kind of fear. I really thought maybe I'm going to lose myself here. That you know, I have nothing to hold on to. Yep. <laughs> it yep. forced me to look really deeply into myself and say, who am I? What have, what have I got about myself that I can hold on to as something that I could reflect on as? You know, Okay, I'm reasonably intelligent. I physically well. I can. So I had to reconstruct myself to have something to hold on to, uh, to take me through that period because I thought I was I was going to sort of collapse into into the abyss. 
recognizing the things I need to improve, but things that I could hold on to. So when I faced the world, I had something to hold on to, to take me through that, that journey. And it was, when I look back, probably one of the most formative periods of my life, because I see so many people who haven't had to look deeply into themselves and see who am I, what have I got, who am I for myself, uh, and and then find themselves defining themselves by their job or the things they've got, and uh, which which would be fine if things are going well. But if those things disappear, there's a kind of existential yep. collapse because yep. I don't know who I am. Uh, and and it's helped me a lot, I think, looking back, going through that process because yeah, people there are more knocks that you'll have along the way. But if you've been there and you've come through it, you can pretty much come through anything. I'm sure there are things that will knock me over in the future, but it's given me a, a kind of greater, deeper resilience that I think have been really helpful. Now, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. One of my best friends at the time also went through a, a very similar process and he ended up committing suicide. So it's yeah. not. Yeah. This is not a formula. It's not a formula, but in, in the, in the sense of facing the deepest adversity that you can handle and coming through it, there's a kind of fortitude and strength that you get from being sort of forged in that furnace that can be really powerful and helpful for, for, for your own psyche as you, as you move forward into life. And and this will, I think, when we get to the flourishing thing, this will be helpful because you're exactly right that people, you find people facing these pivot points in life. And if you had let's say if you had decided to turn to drugs, the story mm. would have taken another turn. Although people do turn to drugs and then they find, oh, there's a bottom yet beneath this bottom. <laughs> exactly. But, and and not everyone hitting that point finds an inflection point and starts going in a, because th this whole business about human flourishing, it's, we we talk about it as if it's sort of an obvious thing. And there can sometimes be an obvious quality about it. We can look at two things and say, not flourishing, flourishing, not flourishing, flourishing. But when you really start to dig down into it, it can also be a very mysterious thing because this might look like flourishing, but it 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 isn't it isn't it isn't going somewhere. It isn't aligning. And so so what was what um what happened next? This is what this is what we want to know. What I mean, you're 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 homeless. You're having this prodigal son moment, and well, I realized uh, I wasn't going to get out of this situation unless I found some way of getting some money. Um, because I needed at least a suit to go to an interview. <laughs> I didn't even have. So uh, it it was. It was a moment very difficult for the ego. Like I, I didn't know what to do, where to turn to. So I ended up walking out onto the streets and basically banging on doors, asking if anyone want, would hire me for anything. I was, it was that kind of desperate. Yeah. And I eventually came across uh, uh, people doing some sort of building work, sort of small uh, renovations and things, and they they looked very surprised that I. <laughs> basically asking for work but they did actually need a laborer so they said okay we'll we'll hire you in cash in hand you know very poor wage but it was with a bunch of cockney builders now for those of you not familiar cockneys are uh, are a name for people 
based in London who've got a, a very sort of sort of working class London accent. You've probably seen them on on, on films, etc. But uh, your accent is really, really important in the UK. There's still like people position you, as you've mentioned on many of your podcasts, you can position people down to the sort of nearest 10 or 20 miles from your with your accent. Um, so I obviously wasn't from London and I had immediately they clocked on the what do they call me? College boy. Like, wow, we've got ah. college boy here. I, be, I, I bet his wrists are a bit limp. And so I was hired and I was absolutely taken to task by these Cockney builders. Like, what the hell have we got with a college boy here? Like, there's no way he's going to be able to do anything. But I thought, no, no, I'm going to show you. <laughs> so I got there early. I worked really, really hard. And week by week, oh, this college boy ain't too bad, actually. He's all right, this college boy. Uh, and so I did about sort of eight to ten weeks there. And the guy who who ran the crew, he was sort of in his early 30s, and he wasn't having this. He said, no, you're a college boy. You're like, I, I don't believe that you're as good as you think you are or as hard as you think you are. Uh, so he said to me, I want you, if you're really like you are what you everyone's saying you are, I want you to come down the boxing gym and do a couple of rounds with me. I want to see what you're made of, Andy. I, so I had to go down to a boxing gym and get in the ring with this guy who was about sort of 10 years older and like half as big again as me and slug it out for a couple of rounds. Uh, I got my head kicked in, but I didn't go down. And I thought, I'm going to show you. And by the end of it, he came up and gave me a hug and said, no, you're all right, Andy. You're all right. So it was a, a weird experience of baptism of fire of that was an amazing experience of me of of having sort of experienced prejudice against the college boy yeah, and then yeah. having to stand my ground and do what I needed to do to prove that I am worthy of their respect. Uh, and in the end, they became good friends. Mm. Um, but through that experience, after about three months, I'd earned enough money to get to buy a, a really cheap suit and then I was still like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I went to a job center and they said, well, we've got these kind of clerical roles that are going that, you know, college boy, you might be able to do one of those. A couple of them didn't really work out, but I ended up at British Telecom, BT. And I got a job there as a clerical assistant, which is basically sort of carrying memos around and doing photocopying. I was sort of like the bottom of the bottom. Uh, and I thought, right, OK, I'm going to. As much as I did in the in the uh, in the in, in the building site, I thought, right, I'm going to give it my best, and I worked really, really hard. And ten years later, I was running one of the divisions in that. Oh my! So, wow this this is a um, this is a Horatio Alger story. <laughs> this is a rags to riches. I love it. This is I mean, this is the stuff movies are made of. So um, good. What did you learn in the in the process? Because this is really good because, I mean, you go to university, you study something which is technical, and then you sort of, I'm going to be a musician. <laughs> you can't be a musician. So you have to work your way up. And so you have a blue-collar 
period. And then it's much more of a, you know, a white collar industry. Mm. What, what did you learn on your way up about, oh, let's say about, let's uh, let's call it the modern world because you saw, I mean, I mean, you, if you work in the trades, that's very much a culture. I mean, I worked for, in college, I worked, um, I worked in a lumber yard loading trucks mm. and, um, you know, it was great work. My father growing up worked on farms and, you know, I very much think young men should work with their bodies, especially when they're young, especially while they've got that health and youth. Um, and you just learn a ton working and living in much more of a blue collar. And then you get into, you know, you get into a British telecom, I would imagine is this massive, um, institution. What, what did you learn? What did you learn on your way up there, especially in terms of from your path? Well, anyone who's worked in corporate America or in, in a big organization like this will, will recognize that these these organizations have lots of hierarchy and that which was very much more the case in those days as well. There was all the managers were suited blue or black suits with shirts and ties. Uh, and the hierarchical status was very, very prominent. So you, you had to sort of cow down to your superiors you obeyed their orders pretty much without question and you were happy you were just grateful to have a job uh but there was a sense that if you applied myself and knuckled down and did what i was told there was a possibility for a career this could you know be my career for life and yeah. I'd be patient and invest time and do my work well and maybe i'll get promoted and then i could establish myself so i entered this sort of very hierarchical uh organization and uh it my approach which i think helped me and looking back on it was 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 a useful one and and, and it's one that it's is a mentality that i've carried beyond and that's transcended my work there was i was always thinking like what is happening here what what's the situation that's arising within our department what is my boss going to do like if i was my boss what would i do in this situation so I was to, used to do my task, but thinking about what would I do if I was the boss? Then I would watch what the boss did and think, hmm, why did they do that? Ah, okay. So, so I was almost rehearsing to be the boss before I was the boss. Interesting. And that helped me because when I was given promotions, I could slip into a role more quickly and more easily. It's almost like I've been rehearsing to do this. And then I'd be working the, the same at the next level and the next level. But it did teach me that there there were ways you could apply yourself to help you move up the escalator a little bit more quickly rather than just finding yourself in a job and sort of panicking for the next three or four months of how you're going to do it. Um, but it was very hierarchical and power driven. And as you move up the hierarchy within a large institution, when you, when you start at the bottom, you're doing with real work and real people and real right. products customers and then somewhere at the top you have the levers of power you can sort of make things happen but in this middle tier it's like the shark infested waters of middle management which uh, don't do the real work nor do they have the real power but they they sort of mediate between the two and there's a lot of signaling and making sure that you look good and hitting the numbers and uh, some some very psychopathic type behaviors can come out in that middle shark infested waters. Everyone's clambering and scrambling to to make their way up the greasy pole. 
And it's when I entered those waters that I, I really thought I can't do this corporate stuff. Hmm. I, I was too interested in what needed to be true out there for customers and what we're building. It, I wanted to do the best that I could with the life force that I've got to have the best impacts that I, I could. And this sort of playing politics to screw people over and playing games. Yeah. I just, I can't do this. And it, even when I was running a department there, uh, I was still technically middle management because my yeah. department wasn't making a hundred million dollars that were even registered on the radar. So there came a point where I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. And I, I literally told my boss, like, shove your job. I, I can't play this game anymore. <laughs> and I just like sod it. I'm off because it, it was a situation that, that, that I just couldn't confront anymore. And uh, off I went. Um, into a wholly different direction oh well well let's hear what what direction and why well i got to the point when i was running the messaging business in bt and it was around about 2000 and um, messaging and telecoms were quite big there were you yeah. know the dot-com boom and telcos yeah. were a big player in that and so there was lots of interest of all these new funky services that were coming out on 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 mobile networks so I got invited because BT was seen as a big player to go and present at a, at a number of international conferences. And for me, this was like, oh, my God, this is this is amazing. <laughs> uh, so uh, I even came over to uh, San Francisco to present on a, on, on a panel. That was my big first international conference. And I remember sitting on a panel and there was the guy running Microsoft Exchange for Microsoft, the guy running messaging for AOL and the, the, someone else from Nortel. And it was me. And it was like, holy shit. Like, On the stage with someone from AOL. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, I've so, surpassed myself. <laughs> but I remember giving my talk with my knees, basically giving a round of applause underneath the lectern because they were trembling so much at being in this sort of esteemed crap. But it, it went well, and that sort of gave me a confidence I could do this. So given that I was doing uh, these kind of presentations, it came to the attention of one of the big international consultancy companies, Arthur D. Little, AD, ADL. That's the name, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're like a smaller version of a McKinsey's or something like that. They, they As soon as they knew I was available, they said, Andy, would you come and work for us? Because we're doing some big major telco deals and your experience and knowledge is going to be really important because all this fancy new clever internet-y stuff on on networks is is kind of where all the action is and we need an expert in our team so i i got hired into them before i knew it, i was being parachuted into boardrooms where people would be hanging on my every word and i thought this was amazing like a couple of months before i couldn't get my boss to take me seriously <laughs> and now people are throwing money <laughs> at this consultancy company to just hear me pontificate on stuff. And I thought, my God, this is amazing. But it did give me a, a couple of years experience of like how the big boys make decisions about mergers and acquisitions. Uh oh, this. How, how, how would we do that? And I made again, some fantastic friends there, which, which I've, I've got today. Uh, and, and it was great experience of being in the boardroom, uh, which I always thought, well, this is interesting. I always thought that 
merit must be at play here. And those, therefore, people right at the top must be so planet brain like to have made it all the way up there. They must kind of know everything. And one of the greatest sort of, <laughs> sort of surprises for me was the, the degree of to which that wasn't the case. Let's be polite. <laughs> there were a lot of people there who were pretty darn clueless. They were they could certainly turn a have a turn of phrase and sound all sort of competent, but really they didn't understand much at all. A lot of it was gloss and yeah, uh, and that shocked me that the people running most of our organizations are dumber than I thought they were. Yeah, uh, yeah, they had they had acquired a particular set of skills, mm. but that set of skills was tended to be what was practiced in that environment i was just yesterday mm. listening to a video about there's a new i'm not going to name the stuff there was a there's a new thing that's out and how they're using ai and how the ai can write your presentation and i looked at the presentation and i thought one of the things that i noted when i was doing a lot of work in denominational ministries and i was at sort of the top you know there there's a there's a commonality between these levels that I just noticed that so many of these presentations and things were just all these buzzwords and these buzz certain buzzwords were in fashion here and certain buzzwords were in fashion there and this whole class of people is just sort of churn they're, they're they're these large language models that keep spitting out these latest versions of the buzzwords and I after a while I thought oh yeah I'm getting out of here I this <laughs> This isn't doing anything. It's just, and and I reason that they have their they have their place in these these there there there's an importance to this level of what's going on. But so much of it, get, getting back to your father's admonition to you, there's some gold in there, but there's just a lot of cruff that you could just get rid of because next year it's going to be the same cruft with different buzzwords on top, and it's just so there's something going on. So, yeah. Yeah. So you discover this and you're a consultant. So you're, you're now being paid to jump into these rooms and listen to this stuff. And yeah. And sort of smile and take it as a, as sort of intelligent commentary that you could work with and play back something while in your mind, you're going, what the, what the, what the hell's going on here? Like who's running the ship here? And, and that's a lot of the reason why these strategy consultants are hired in. Um, is If you're just running the system, I can do that. But if we've got to change or do something new or it's not working well, a, a lot of senior people will call in consultancies to be their off-board brains. Right. Come in and tell me what to do. Right. A. And B, if it goes wrong, I can blame you and I'm still it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. My ass. And they would spend big money on these things. Yes. And guess what? 90% of all the reports that are ever written by these big consultancies just end up on a shelf. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. So it, again, a big eye opener. God, this is how the world works. And which subsequently has been processed in, in, in the work that I subsequently went on to do. So I, I did that for a little while, left it got Arthur D. Little to be interested in a, in a startup actually before, before I left and, and that didn't quite work out. I nearly got a deal with Virgin. So that was another kind of big moment where I thought, ah, oh, rock star, I can make. 
But then the dot-com crash had really crashed and Virgin was walloped by 9-11 because most of their cash came from Virgin Atlantic. Uh, and they were very close to signing a deal for a, uni a, a voice portal service, which is almost like a, a prototype of Siri. I was a bit ahead of my time on that. Hmm. Uh, but they they sort of banned all investments when 9-11 happened. So we were very close to a deal that crashed. And I was like, oh, God, I need to start all over again. So then I w went out and spent, I suppose, the next 10 years doing consultancy projects and on helping organizations to think through new products and services. But one of the approaches that I that I used, which has been, I suppose, a golden thread through my career ever since, was I was always fascinated by what do we mean by value? What I saw is that most organizations, institutions look at people through the lens of the thing that I do or the thing that I sell, which gives you a very myopic view of inquiry as to what is it that people want. You know, it's like, how do I fit people into the thing that I'm trying to give them is, is the orientation. And I was like, no, let's go out and sit with the people who we're trying to offer services. Understand them. What's the context they're in? What matters to them? What, what are they trying to do? Because if we can have a deeper understanding of that, we can go back into the organization and evolve what we're doing to speak to the real holistic needs of, of people. So I spent a lot of time helping organizations, especially as they started to go, oh, digital, and we could do all sorts of things with it, to, to try and anchor that creation process in a much deeper understanding of what do we mean by value. And that... That then led to a whole bunch of projects in different organizations and public sector and private sector and third sector. So I did, I did a lot of projects there. And that got me increasingly noticed as someone who had an interesting perspective. So I got invited to participate in what's now become customer experience conferences where organizations go, holy shit, like our customers are deserting us and they don't like us. Like, how, how do we nurture and cultivate a trusted relationship with those that we offer services? Like, we've got to listen to people and find out what they really want and actually take the human seriously and start to internalize that. Version one of that tends to be lipstick on the pig. Like, let's create a better website and let's make our people smile a bit more and say some sort of pre-prepared stuff that sounds more pleasant. But uh, going deeper, and I now chair a lot of these conferences as a kind of side gig, is actually the consciousness of the organization needs to change. If we're truly to be in service of human people and human needs, it can't be just that we continue with our top-down hierarchical siloed structure and paint a bit of nice lipstick on the front. We have to internalize what, what is being asked of us so our organization can coordinate through itself and what needs to be done to be able to be able to claim and, and execute a, a way of behaving that truly does nurture and cultivate long-term relationships that matter to people, that deliver the, the real value. And this is an interesting piece that has subsequently come on to be a, a, an interesting focus of me, of mine, of is there something in this story that un, can unlock what we've all been talking about in this corner of the internet, that the transition from game A to game B, because the game A thinking is top-down, hierarchical, transactional. We just extract as much as we can from the customs we've got by doubling down on a kind of machine-based way of doing things. 
But what I'm seeing in these conferences that many organizations are realizing that doesn't work anymore. People have wised up to the way organizations work. They share their experiences on social media and like they can't get away with that. And customers will now walk away if they don't get the experience they want. So organizations are actually being forced to listen to what it is that real people really want hmm. and be able to lean into that and be able to sort of respond to that, not just in the lipstick on the pig way, but on, on a more fundamental way. So what is it that humans value? How do we organize ourselves to do that? And then the second piece that follows from that is that if we're going to truly offer experiences that that matter to people, then we have to treat our people well, because if we treat them badly, there ain't no way that anyone's going to get a good customer experience. So now creating value for real people needs to be matched by creating value for real employees, like meaningful work where you're treated well. And if you can bring those two together, what is it that people really need and want? And we inspire and create the type of work that makes that possible for people to be able to do that, then magic starts to happen. And what I'm starting to see as I'm, I'm chairing these events is some really interesting case studies of organizations going on a journey of kind of really in, sort of a consciousness that this is the, this is the new game in town. This is a, a transition from just driving the machine hard to ex and extracting value from the world to one where <clears throat> creating real value for for people for the world is is the new orientation and so so i think there's something interesting in that move that i'm trying to sort of fan the flames on when i'm chairing these events and and doing talks to say this represents a direction of the future that holds out the possibility that our institutions and organizations instead of being extractive from people and from workers and from the world can gain a new consciousness that creating value for people through better work, through responsible ways of being in the world, offers an opportunity to transition our organizations and systems to something approaching the sort of game B ambition. There's a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot of shareholders that are putting pressure on management teams to sort of suck them back into the old way of thinking. But there is a growing awareness that I'm seeing that people are fed up, see the old model doesn't work anymore, and they're mm -hmm. wanting something better. And the green shoots of that are starting to come through. It's interesting because I remember in the, in the late 90s, uh, churches, I mean, a lot of this has happened in terms of churches because churches have been losing customers. And in the 90s, the 80s and 90s with the seeker movement, uh, there was a movement in American evangelicalism, which spread all over the world where, okay, we're going to, we're going to reimagine the church as a business. And so the, uh, the people who come to your service are your customers. And if you want to have a large, flourishing, impactful church, you just need to have high customer satisfaction. And so churches at this point were giving a lot of surveys, asking about customer satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera. That whole movement sort of fell apart, partly because people aren't, um, at one level, people have a sense of, sort of a dead reckoning sense of, what feels life-giving, what feels like flourishing, what is good for me. 
but at the same time, when I walk by a donut shop, I am drawn right to the <laughs> right to what um, long term might not be in you know mm. in the service of my flourishing. A donut is a wonderful thing, but a diet of donuts creates problems. Exactly. And so, and so this this business about um, you know not only creating this business about finding helping people especially within community find value because there's there's always there's always the element where in this world much value creation requires sacrifice at one level or another mm. and there's it's almost always the case that um sacrifice sort of has a delayed relationship with value you know if let's say you're saving for retirement there's sacrifice 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 in order to benefit later on and so and and so part of the value you know there's sort of a transition where you want to sort of put the value in okay i'm reaching my goals towards this later and and so it's it's not people people suspect that well if you just listen to customers you can know what they want hmm and to me that's sort of like if you just listen to the people who are in your church they know what they want well they kind of know what they want they sometimes think they know what they want but the truth is if you actually give them directly what they say they want Sometimes that goes okay, and sometimes it really doesn't go well, partly because you're also dealing with a community of people and mm. not just individual individual people. So I, I don't know. Surely this has to be a big piece of what you're talking about. Exactly, S especially since more recently over the last 10 years I've moved into health and brought a yes. lot of the thinking in, in, into health, which raises a, a lot of the points you're talking about. But, but before we get there, one of the things that fascinated me about innovation and creating new products and services is it's uh, it's the business process that has the highest failure rate. People who've analyzed this have said, depending on which industry you look at, 70 to 90% of new innovations fail to deliver the business case that gave rise to them. Like the failure rate is super, super high. Uh, so the, the one of the thing that fascinated me, why is this the case? Like, why are we so rubbish at innovation? And so I looked deep, more deeply into this to say, well, what are the reasons? Are we just not good at making stuff or whatever? What is it? And what, what I found from the people who've been researching this, that the principal reason why innovation is, success, is not successful is that we never understood the nature of the problem we were trying to solve well enough. So we can perfectly build the wrong thing. And this happens a lot uh, in organizations. So I thought, why are we not good at finding out what people want? And most people go, oh, we do market research. We go and ask all sorts of questions. And... But then I was looking at the market research and most of, when you dig deeper into that, what questions are you asking people uh, most market research has presupposed the questions that are relevant and missing out what actually matters. They're not even asking about that. And 
Therefore, I, I came upon an approach which I've used quite a lot, and any of your, your listeners who, who are into technology are probably starting to come across. It's called like jobs to be done. Method. And it's a very simple but very powerful idea, which is people don't really want products and services. They want products and services are simply tools or enablers to get a job done. And there's a, a classic kind of example used in marketing, which is back in the 1950s, which I think a, a marketer called Theodore Levitt made famous, which is people don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. <laughs> and of course, everyone's focusing on the drill and the build the drill, the drill to drill and drill bits. You know, they don't want them silver, they want them gold. They want them. And actually the person just wants a hole. Like the drill is simply a mean to get a hole. And if there's a better way of getting a hole, I don't need your drill. So those involving providing services got so fixated by their solutions that they're not actually listening to or understanding the nature of the problem that someone is trying to solve. So the jobs to be done methodology is saying, what, what, what sweep off all products and services off the table. Let's just forget about that. Let's just sit down. What, what is it that people are trying to get done? What, what is it that matters to people? Because when you ask them, what do you want? Sounds like an intuitive question, but what you're actually doing is smuggling two questions in at the same time. What is the job you're trying to get done? And what do you think the solution is to your own job? <laughs> now, people are very good at, at talking about their problems. They're not so good at coming up with the solution to their own problems. That's the innovators. Right? You're the expert in this area. So cleaving those two apart and just saying, what what is the problem or the opportunity or the job they're tr trying to get done? Who's doing it? What context? How does, it, what, how does it get triggered? Let's walk through the steps. What are the needs that exist in those? By doing proper research like that and go, ah, so that's what people are trying to do. And this is why they're trying to, what they want to feel about it. Now, okay, now we've got a detailed model and we can go back and think about what can we build or create that can speak to that? Maybe we've only got a piece of it. Maybe we need to partner with someone over here who can build something else. So how do we get much better understanding the nature of the problems we're trying to solve so we can collect the right things together and then present them in the right way? And that is such a fundamental piece that's missing around not just businesses, but public services, even charities. I would possibly say even into the church itself. Oh, absolutely. I And when you said... You know, they got so fixated on their solutions, they forgot the job to be done. I thought, well, there, there's, there's, I, 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 that's what pastors do. They mm. get, you know, here, here is the solution. And they, they keep selling these solutions out there and nobody's buying. And the pastors are well, yeah. part of the religion as well. That's because, and then you can have the devil or itching ears or whatever, and whatever excuse that they, they fabricate for why they're fabulously unsuccessful. But um, no, that's that's that rings very true. Another piece that I've come to appreciate more since moving more into taking everything I've learned into health, which we, we can talk about in a minute, is that is this notion that you talked about the chocolate cake one, which is the as economists would now I've learned this will now talk about is hyperbolic discounting, they call it, which is. As the human brain is is evolved we're dealing with complex situation and un uncertain situations those decisions that you make in the short term are really really important because if the saber-toothed tiger is going to come out and eat you or so you can spend time pontificating about the future but you might get eaten in the process and yes. therefore 
the short term is like super important. You have to focus on that because you don't get to play the longer game if you're not around anymore. So what it's caused is a bias towards the short term. We discount the longer term. Uh, the short term seems more salient and relevant, which is why there are so many psychological experiments that you know have $50 now or $100 next year and oh, take the 50. Or I know I'm on a diet, but that chocolate cake looks so good. And so part of that, what I've discovered is, is and, and John Verbeke talks a lot about this, the relationship with your future self. So there was a really interesting experiment I saw uh, a while back, which would it wasn't it wasn't in health, it was in pensions, which took a photo of a, a younger person and presented it on the screen. Here's your photo. Here's you now, and here's one that's aged. And we're going to have a little slider here, so you can uh, save less and uh, for your future pension, and your current self starts to smile. And your future self goes, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you're abandoning me. <laughs> and then if you slide it the other way, like, I'm going to save more, then your current self looks like, oh, what about all the parties and the going out? And the, you, You're going to screw me. Whereas the future self is like, you're looking after me. And just being able to create a relationship with the future self, in, in this particular example, using photos that were aged, et cetera, it was, they were able to show that, having that relationship with the future self actually changed people's decisions about what they were going to do. Um, what, what I found from some of the work I've been doing in health, I was really interested in why is it that certain people were able to make changes in their life, whether it's changing their diet or stop drinking or, or whatever it was. And some people who attempted it just fell off the wagon. Uh, and I was working for one of the um, health insurers. We were able to sort of bring people in into those two categories and try and dis divine, if you like, what, what was the magic ingredient? And what we discovered is that those people who had a bigger goal that meant something to them, hmm. who could see that the health behavior was undermining that, were more likely to A, make a change and B, stick to it. So, for example, there was the woman who gave up smoking because it stained her teeth and she wanted to find a boyfriend. Now, finding a boyfriend was more important than the urge to smoke, and that gave her this fortitude and strength to do it. Another guy gave up drinking because he realized he was so exhausted. He was being a, a poor father to his own child. And that kind of realization, I want to be a good father to my child, was the goal that enabled him to have the motivation to change his behavior to be the better person that he wanted to be. So it really struck home that telling people to stop doing things, even yes. though they can logically see the rationality for it, as soon as temptation or pressure came along, they would fall off the wagon. If like a good coach, you could find out what was important to that person that they wanted to preserve or, or augment in their life and then scaffold the behaviors that needed to achieve that, which could include a bunch of health ones, you were much more likely to be successful. Uh, but we, we still, in our healthcare systems, tell people what to do rather than trying to spend time understanding what's important to them and coaching them on that journey. Uh, this was a, it was a big insight. Well, then you get into structural issues. For example, I have, you know, my primary care physician. I really like my primary care physician uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, when I'm in the office with him, he's very patient with me. Um, 
you know, and if, you know, certain goals for my health, I mean, this is the most, that's the weight you should lose, lose, you should eat less of this, you should eat more of that. There's also the issue that I, he's been my primary care doctor for 25 years and the admonitions he gives me haven't just changed relative to my age. They've also changed relative to the, um, the, the particular orthodoxies that have changed over the last number of years. And, um, so there's some of that, but the, I mean, it's often said, and I think they're right. We don't really have a health industry. We sort of have a sickness industry. Yes. And, and we have devised a, and I see this with, you know, again, many of the people in my church are elderly and I've known them now for 26, 27 years. And I've, I've watched, you know, I've been able to watch them age quite closely and I've been mm -hmm. able to watch a group of them age quite closely. And I've been able to see their relationship with the various, because here in Sacramento, we have Kaiser Permanente. They're a big medical provider. We have Sutter. They're a local one. We've got, um, we've got other, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield has some shops here, so on and so forth. But it's been, it's been fascinating watching, for example, there's a woman who she's over 90 now. And recently had her 90th birthday. She's diabetic. She's always been someone who's taken very good care of herself. In her 70s and 80s, she would very regularly go to the gym. She would watch her weight. She would take care of her diabetes. She would do all of these things. And, and that has in many ways extended her life. And now she's 90. But some of these things are catching up to her. And she had a um, she had some bleeding that put her in the hospital. Turned out that the the source of the bleeding was not a big deal medically, but the tests that they did to try to find out what was causing the bleeding messed up two or three of her other vital systems so that now three weeks later, the even just the, the attempt to find out what she was doing has really stressed her and her one of her daughters is her primary caregiver who's moved into her house and is living with her, being in the same bedroom. It's basically, you know, you work with a lot of people who don't necessarily have a lot of money. And so they they find other ways to manage all of this. No fancy, you know, no fancy thing. But but so now the whole family system is stressed. And that's for me where you get into this conversation of, oh yeah, flourishing, thriving. And one of the things you also see with elderly people is. They have lived all of their lives caring for their children, seeking the welfare of their children. And so we, when they get to this point where there's been a transition where now they are the ones always receiving care and they watch their children, often who are their children are now young seniors, they're in their 60s and 70s, caring for them. They no longer have the vitality they had in their 30s. And I mean, you watch this whole dance and also with the knowledge that the seniors have you know, when COVID hit, it was so interesting because everyone in the culture was like, oh, I'm worried about the seniors. You know, seniors should stay home. And it was so funny because it was the seniors banging on the door of church saying, you can't close this place. Well, why? Because I need this place. Well, aren't you afraid of COVID? I'm 90 years old. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, I want to spend my last years in my church, not huddled in my house in isolation, being separated from the things I care about most. So, I mean, it's, you know, in Verveke terms, it's combinatorial explosiveness in terms of value that people are facing. And so, 
Mm. What is flourishing? What is the important thing to do in any one given circumstance? This is this is really difficult stuff. It's you've hit on a major, major issue for for, for health at the moment. Um, as you rightly pointed out, I mean, here in the UK we have a national health service, but in reality, it's a national sickness service. It only cuts in once you've got some symptoms that are severe enough to warrant you getting some some attention. So a we, we don't think about wellness and flourishing. We talk about sickness and treatment. It's reactive. But also we got the problem uh, about how fragmented and fractured this is. And so I've been doing a lot of work looking at future, what a future healthcare system might look like. But part of that is looking at what, how the hell did we get to where we are now? And the, there is something quite interesting about the enlightenment, about the reductionist project of breaking things down into parts and subparts and sub 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 parts and we see this in medicine we've got now we have, there are specialists for every bit of your body but no one who understands you yes or is even interested in the you that represents the entirety of you and your life uh and the the older we get the, the more sick we become the more we can often feel like a pinball bouncing around inside a system that's looking at fragments of us and no one's seeing us. And it, and it's massively disempowering. It's hugely expensive for the system to treat us like that. We've got a, a broken system that is developed and expresses itself in, in McGilchrist's left hemisphere's creation. We need a right hemisphere view of, of health. So this is... Largely what I've been, uh, my my current up-to-date work has been, uh, having done lots of projects across different parts of health, is that we need a new vision that puts the person back at the center, yeah. the whole person. Because um, we've got all these fragments and all these silos doing bits and pieces, but they're not joined up. They're not oriented or orchestrating themselves around a holistic understanding of the person in front of us or the community, if because it's a community of persons. Uh and we're now entering into an era where next generation technologies and sensors and biomarkers and <clears throat> treatments are becoming way, way more sophisticated. But are we going to put all this new capability in service of bootstrapping this fragmented siloed model? Or is this the, the opportunity to reimagine how we do health and put people back at the center? Because as we know, especially as we start to look at earlier interventions or maybe looking after people it's not the stuff that we do to them is we're empowering and helping people to do more for themselves in their individual their families and their communities so we need to enter into a, a more holistic relationship with people which means we've got to bring the silos together to orchestrate the various pieces into something more whole and more and more complete and that represents a very different way of thinking about what a future healthcare system would look like rather than bootstrapping all these different silos with bits of AI and technology and then creating a more fragmented picture that where each fragment is supercharged. Yep. <laughs> but there is no holistic support. And the more we know about health, as you point out, the more we concentrate more on flourishing and well-being because it's much better not to be sick in the first place than... Yes throw loads of money trying to fix you when you've already when you've already lost your health we do need to define 
what we mean by well-being and flourishing and that's a really important question because if we can't define that what are we trying to to do it becomes everyone's crossing over each other but this entering into more wholesome relationships that help that are, are continuous that recognize it's not just about my physical organs or my my defects or problems it's about in, helping people to see well seeing them where they are and helping them on their own journeys to to the the best place they can they, they can hope to get and through that sort of closer relationship there's an opportunity to draw into the spiritual as well you know, what is a better life what could be a better life what might i need to do and how might i do it and in in doing that do i come more alive am i able to express more of myself am i if i do i'm going to take care of myself and those around me more so i my family my community my country will benefit way way more from having a more holistic sort of flourishing approach to how we think about healthcare so this has been very much at the heart of my project it, and it's so before i just had a microcosm of this which i have it's part of why ministry is so interesting one woman coming to the woman's bible study this morning her daughter neglected to put her walker in the car and so when she got to church i got a phone call from her can you come out to the parking lot so i could go out and i could she could take my arm and i could walk her in and um i knew there would be another woman with a walker here and so she could get in that would be fine um but then then the the study ended early because another woman who for the last month has been suffering from some respiratory issues She's had a sinus infection, and I asked, I, I often talked to many of them before, how are you doing? Well, got this sinus infection. They gave me an antibiotic. It didn't really seem to knock it out. She was anxious about this. The woman who came in first without her walker, when she came in, she was quite, she was quite panicky. Uh, mm -hmm. I could tell by the way she was talking. I've known all of these people for a long time that she was, uh, she was bored. She was she, it, with a little bit of pushing, you could have put her into a panic attack, and I was just settling her down, settling her down. An hour and a half around the table, some prayer, a little bit of food, studying the Bible with her friends. But when I came out there at the end, she was she was herself, and I could get her to the car, and everything's fine. The reason they ended early was the other woman with the sinus infection. She, the more they were there, the more stressed she got that stress response. And then they closed down early because her daughter who comes with her had to take her leave. The daughter is the youngest one there. She's the uh, Bible study teacher. So you just see these systems in community. And, and then, you know, part of what I think a lot of our, a lot of the people who listen to this are going to have anxiety about when they listen to you talk is because we've seen, I think, some really poorly implemented, sometimes well-meaning attempts at a public level to address some of these things. For example, in, in, in San Francisco, there was an attempt to limit the size of fast food soft drinks because of obesity. And on one hand, that's sort of a very, that's a, that's a very um, emissary brain approach to it. Well, if we have too much diabetes in the in the context, well, if if McDonald's can only slim this down to a certain size, then we can instead what they tended to what they tended to 
insight in people is that people have all of this opponent processing in terms of, also in terms of autonomy. If you tell me I can't have a 64 ounce big gulp or some big soda, um, you know, screw you. I'm going to walk to the supermarket. I'm going to buy a two liter. I'm going to have just as much as I can because you did. We've seen this with smoking taxes. We've seen with this, with all of this. And so I think we've seen a little bit of thinking in terms of our systems about, oh, well, if we want to make people healthier, we have to address some of these culprits. But a lot of the sort of social engineering attempts I've seen have often often responded in reactions that, number one, it probably wasn't going to work anyway. Number two, you've just, and, and COVID, of course, had a piece of this too, public health has now become a, a triggering, anxiety-producing uh, stand-in for, hmm, I'm not going to get to do what I want to anymore. And so, and again, as a minister, most of what, you know, a, a lot of what sin is in church, I mean, it's sort of the easy level sins that are the donuts type sins, you know, <laughs> the short adultery. <laughs> There's a real donut type sin. And you sit down with someone who let's say has uh, has cheated on their wife uh, and you begin to say, well, how, how, how really, how really did that one night stand work out for you? Um, you know, <laughs> so what, what, what's some of the thinking about this? Cause surely people must be talking about that because again, a lot of the direct approaches have sort of made people say, Whoa, what, what is my government going to do with me in terms of, you know, we want what's best for you. Uh, well, there are a number of pieces in there. I think, one just laying the landscape a little bit is those kind of practices and behaviors of eating together as a family talking together being as one uh, having people within the community you would hang out with and do things together a, a lot of that has dissolved in many many communities and so the 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 social capital I don't, I don't like that phrase but you know what i mean the, the sort of social glue that bound us together as individuals within family structures and with community structure a lot of that has dissolved uh, away partly because people are moving around for work which means that they're not co-present in ways that enable them to do those things also because the ability to delve into community resources has largely been replaced by i can do that by sitting on my sofa with my app i can order food i can get things done. i don't need to go and see bob at the baker or people at my local uh, uh, butchers I, a, a lot of what i can do can be done independently of my community and then what we've got is the sort of state and the market delivering those services directly to people as individuals <laughs> Uh, and therefore the ability to commune around things together has gone so and a lot of the habits and customs and practices that would kind of bind people into habits and behaviors that were healthy are, are dissolved and now we're more preyed on by the market and the state and, and indulged on our, on our short-term interests because that's what marketing does and that's what people want you and there is great market in addiction. When I was over in the US doing a, a study on the unmet needs of diabetics, I met with one of the top endocrinologists in the US, and he was saying, 
you'd be surprised the sophistication of some of the food companies. They have scientists who would look at dopamine pathways and wow, the proper, you know, the different combinations of sugar and salt and fat and the crunch and that they're, they're analyzing all these for the, for the effects on dopamine pathways because they're designing addiction into these products and services. So these are real issues that we, we do have to contend with because I want that. How much do you really want that? And how much have you been programmed to want that? Because your dopamine pathways have been hijacked deliberately by companies have designed experiences that trigger them. And now you find yourself wanting. Is it really you doing the wanting or has that wanting been programmed into you? So these are real real issues to think about in this landscape. But to, I think to the core point that you're, you're bringing out, which is the, the the question of is this the nanny state telling us what we should and shouldn't do and like to what degree do i retain choice of i being told what to do and there's there's a good condensation of this challenge presented increasingly in the uk healthcare system which is we need to shift away from what's the matter with you hmm. to a discourse around what matters to you because if if we can find what matters to people, much as I was saying before, like about, you know, I want to be a better father, I want to be, what is it that people want to do more of it? Because even by just having that conversation, I feel listened to, like someone actually is interested in what I want. And if I can express that, and that there are better ways of that I, I can be helped and assisted to get what I want, or, or what I, you know, what I truly want, as opposed to <laughs> the donut. Uh, is there that there enters the opportunity to scaffold some of the things that would need to be done, the habits and routines that will help people to get to where they want to be. And lo and behold, when people feel that they're making progress in their life and they feel that their agency is leading them to a better place, they care more about themselves. Yeah. There's less of the nihilism, the sense of progress and betterment and lo and behold, slightly healthier things start to creep in. Yeah. So, Finding the right relationship and interest in people and picking that up and making that the center point of how to evolve a conversation that can usher in mm. people's agency and support of their own betterment. I think that needs to be a part of what we're talking about. Oh, I, I think that's very true. When I think about the seniors, even just the, you know, this little group of 10 to 12 women who gather here every Tuesday if you would sit down with them and talk about why, you know, what, what do you want? What matters to you? Most of what I would hear from them would be, I want to be able to visit my children or my grandchildren or my grand. Some of them have great, great grandchildren. I want to, I want to have a relationship with my children. I want to participate in my church. I, I often have, I have it regularly now that I have some people who are, on the verge of, you know, they're they're going to need an assisted living situation. And they recognize that some of these assisted living situations are not very close to this community here in this church. And it's it's quite remarkable for a number of these people. If you sit down with them, they're not just they're not just telling me this because they think I want to hear it. Our relationship is long beyond that. They say to me, Pastor, I need to be able to come to church. I need to be able to see my friends. I need mm. to be able to worship God. I need to be able to participate in this community 
because for, for some of them, that is the most meaningful thing in their life right now. It really is. And, um, and so I think that's, I think that's a great, it's a far better way of framing it because that's something that they will back to this question of sacrifice. That's something they will sacrifice now for, because many of them have been sacrificing. They've given their time, they've given their money, they've given their attention for decades of their life. And that matters to them. Well, one of the things also is about what, what resources in community already exist that can be built upon. So yeah. Both my parents have sort of quite severe health issues now. And so I've been spending a lot of time as a carer for my parents, going between London and Yorkshire yeah. looking for my parents. And they're still in the same market town where I brought up, where I was brought up. And I've had an opportunity while I've been up there for, for many months to get more involved in what's happening in the community. And there's some interesting work being done there. It's a small town of 15,000 people, but they did an audit of what are all the charity and voluntary groups that exist in our community? And they discovered there were about 240 of them, from church coffee mornings to quite comical ones, which are like older women whose husbands have retired, who, who the women have gathered together to volunteer their husbands out to do community service, to get them out of their hair, but they can, can do odd jobs and fix things. So they actually... <laughs> push their husbands and sort of pimp them out to the community to solve problems, which is amazing, like the things going on in the community. So whether it's, it's gardeners or babysitters or coffee mornings or, or, or delivering food to 240 of these uh, groups were, were, were in play, but almost none of them knew about each other. Mm. It's like, what if we were to connect them all together so they all become aware of each other's? So that if you were doing Mrs. Smith's gardening and you could see she was sense that she was lonely and isolated, you could cross refer her into a, a coffee morning thing. And yeah. Uh, so can we mobilize the community's resources to so we could cross refer people into dip or, or make people aware or signpost people into the resources that already exist? And that yeah. this was yeah. super interesting. And I'm doing a piece of work with them at the moment to spend time with older people, interviewing them. What are the jobs they're trying to get done? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what community resources do we have? And what are we discovering that might represent new opportunities for the community to come together to invest or seek ways of providing more, more services that can meet the needs of the community? And one of the things that community has spotted is the need for connection and friends so there's a nasborough now has got this sort of policy of three good friends like can we through the activity we're doing create a context and and, and opportunities for people to come together so they can dis they can discover friends because friendship feeling seen feeling valuable uh, to others especially in old age is such a meaningful activity and it doesn't take a lot of effort and creativity to foster possibilities for people to come together around different themes, whether it be food or whether it be the church or whether it be local interests. What more could be done to bring people together? Uh, and the COVID kind of woke people up and they, they sort of did come out of their houses more to explore, but that's kind of shrinking back again. So yep. there's a, 
is a kind of window of opportunity to take what arose out of COVID and, and stitch it together into something more substantial before it fades away again. Uh, so that's something that I, I'm helping to look at. And it, what it really points to, it's not just about public health and institutional services. It's also about what's already in our communities that can be brought alive. Yeah. Um, I, I think part of the challenge for let's say top level structures and leaders government um is figuring out how to create a context where the other smaller things that sort of arise buzz up bottom up out of the jobs that need to be done have a context in which these things flourish mm. because I think part of what we're pointing to is that if people are going to flourish, then, I mean, we're, we're niche creatures. We have these neat niches that we inhabit and a church is a niche, a small church is a niche and a little coffee group is a niche and a pub can be a niche. And you have all of these niches and there are ways that governments can either create a fertile place for these things to develop and sustain themselves. I think, for example, in the United States, the um, nonprofit, uh, you know, donations to nonprofits are tax deductible. Mm. Um, churches in the United States, thanks to the First Amendment, have some different policies in terms of businesses. We don't, we don't pay, we don't pay business tax on the offerings received in church. People often look at that and say, oh, churches are getting a free skating. It's like, well, but so is the dog pound. So is the, the dog society. It's kind of a level playing field. But the, because these, these kinds of things, and I've noticed this, especially watching, my father died rather precipitously, but my mother is now in her mid eighties and doing very well health-wise. She's got great health. She's very sharp. Um, but she's also more careful in that if it's she lives in an area of the country that they get snow. If it's snowy or sleety out, she'll stay home and she'll watch church on the, the TV. COVID get least gave us church streaming for some churches so she can watch the church on the TV. She doesn't have to go out, et cetera, et cetera. But I can see where these organizations like churches, Bible studies, coffee groups, all of these things are so much more important to her. And in fact, our own little ladies Bible study here, this our and and that group grew, and then my church grew because one of the women was part of a knitting group, that knitting group that met at the library, and the yeah. library gave them space, and and just that giving them space, and I'm, I'm so often impressed at how, just a little bit of attention and just a few resources, can actually help a couple of people do something that really blesses the world. And yeah. so to have our our very large institutions and powerful organizations like governments and major corporations have a degree of awareness that the, the health of all of us requires a, a kind of situation where, you know, sometimes people call this subsidiarity and you got lots of fancy words for it, but it's having an environment where these smaller things can grow because then you know, then suddenly we begin to see, well, often what happens is people sort of fall through the cracks. And that's kind of a fancy way of saying it. But the cracks are created by a lack of community. Yes. That's that's where the cracks are. And yeah. Um, yeah. 
one of the things that's that's come out of this project was can we get the community groups to come together to look at the patterns of what they what they're seeing to reveal something of what could be done to improve the community fabric of of of, of the town and could that then be we've been invited through various workshops to come together and say well if we were to take and understand those patterns and augment the ones that need to be augmented and address the ones which are, represent sort of patterns of problems, could we create a vision for our town that would speak to all of those? Hmm. So we bring all the community groups together to co-create based on their experience of being in the in the homes and having the deep relationships with, with people across the town, a, a vision of what that town of what the town could look like in the future if we were to speak to that. Yeah. And lo and behold, in the UK, there's a bit of a shift going on in terms of how local politics and power is, is distributed. So we're now taking a, lot, a leaf out of the American book. We're now sort of creating more mayors. So there'll be a mayor of North Yorkshire, and he wants to have, or she, wants to have a direct relationship with the towns rather than having this kind of regional structure where... Nairsborough would just be the sidekick of the nearest large metropolitan area. What did you have before? We we had sort of more, the, the counties were broken down into regions, usually dominated by a major, major oh. town. And then all the other smaller towns would simply be satellites of that and would get the sort of the, the crumbs oh. left on the table. But now the, the mayor wants a direct relationship with all the small towns. Yeah. And, got money to spend so if a town was able to step up and say what it needs for its own flourishing the mayor is more likely to give money to support the town doing its own co-creation of its own future so yeah. this represents some interesting bottom-up dynamics yeah. to supplement whatever the the, the, st the, the statutory and state-based institutions and private sector is trying to do yeah. so the next piece is like how do we get all these pieces to work together yeah yeah stuff around proper health and social care plus the stuff in the community is actually dancing together in, in the right way and i think part of it's going to be the basically the funding models for these things because you know if there's you know, in, in America, at least you have businesses. I mean, a, a business generates income and everybody sort of understands the motivation for that. But if if you can demonstrate, I mean, I've long thought that, of this with respect to the homeless situations we have in California, because I, I, I have, you know, relationships with a number of homeless people. And when I look at the, when I look at the cost that these people have to be incurring if anybody is actually, so they're living on the street, but they have to be costing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year of health and police and social services. Mm -hmm. And so on one hand, I look at them and I think, well, what does this cost the city? Well, this this one person must cost, might, you know, if you would pay them 50 grand, you know, you the city would probably be 150 grand ahead. But you can't just give him fifty grand, or he's just the money's just basically going to go to his drug dealer. Um, and so, well, no, drug dealer, uh, Anheuser Busch, mm. um, the the tobacco, and then the state lottery, because that's usually uh, where where it goes. Um, 
And so, you know, that's figuring this, figuring the economic side of that is really crucial because I see two things. I think I see two things coming at us that are going to be an absolute catastrophe for us as a society. One of them is I would bet if you go to your small town of these 200 some organizations, the heavy lifting and the infrastructure for those organizations, uh, my guess are done by 60, 70, 80 and 90 year olds in those organ in those towns. And when these leader, when this leadership level dies, some will bubble up. But at least in North America, over the next 20 years, we are going to see a precipitous decline in churches like mine. They're just going to go away, which means there's going to be a Taco Bell here, and which means the community neighborhood organization isn't going to have a place to meet. Which I mean, there's going to be this ripple effect. So that's on one side that the the older generation who had this as basically part of their culture at a deeper level than successive generations, and they've been holding these things together, they're going away. The other thing I see coming is the autism wave, mm. and what I mean by that is, and I, I don't mean severely disabled people on the spectrum. I mean people on the spectrum who have enough capacity to they might be able to get a college degree. They can hold down some level of work, sometimes low level, sometimes high level. When you talked about three good friends, the one thing they really struggle with is exactly that. Yeah. And when we have large numbers of our population that really struggle in an, in an, in a, dramatic way to maintain even one friendship that's going to put tremendous pressure on this sort this social fabric which is already sort of coming yeah. apart you raise a really really important point there paul the the question of community you could look at it in in the round, but if you look at it through through the strata of different age groups and what community means to those, what you see is a very different picture. And the one where community is most profound and deep and manifest and embodied are in the older generation who knew what it was like before the digital age, when the community was a real thing. And and that that age group is is aging now, but it still has the yearnings for that kind of community and. Yes. If something could be done to foster that, there could be more that that reconstitutes part of that. But the new generations coming through would, even if we could reconstitute that, would once that generation dies off, are we now faced with the next generations, you know, coming right down to Gen Z now, who hardly talk to anyone? Yeah, <laughs> everything done more digitally is done through chat. There was a interesting book that I read. I can't remember the author. It was called Fractured. I don't know where you came across it a few years ago, which was looking at how through predominantly the use of digital and social media channels to converse with people, people are self-selecting those who they wish to be in community with. And what what's happened is that the younger people very rarely have anything to do socially with people more than five years difference from them. So the, the mixing of the age groups that we saw as a traditional part of every community is, is being self-sorted out so that younger people only ever deal with people like themselves of the same age. And 
and therefore what would community mean to these kind of people who who are not used to communing <laughs> in, in in the sort of off offline way i mean we, we this we need to think about that because as, as you rightly say when this older generation dies out what the institutions are already there are, are probably going to shrivel on the vine unless we can reimagine and regenerate a new form of community that can speak to the the culture and the needs of of the younger generations and that's that's a challenge for our, for our civilization because if those do dissolve then we are truly living as individual lost agents highly connected to institutions to to provide us our needs in in the physical sense but we're bereft and lost of the very thing that gives our life meaning and that gives binds us to each other that makes the society cohesive that gives us shared understanding of our world that makes politics and, and democracy meaningful yes. <laughs> we don't have a... so yeah these these are fundamental questions uh, that I, I i don't have the answer to them and yeah, I, I'm, yeah. but need to be deeply yeah. thought about how, how did you I mean, we were in this McGilchrist thing. How on earth did you ever come upon me? I mean, YouTube channels. I'm no Jordan Peterson. I don't have, you know, 7 million subs. How did you ever find this little corner? Interesting question. Well, I've always been hyper curious. So London was a, you know, a brilliant place to be based because almost every night there's a free talk on some aspect of science or technology or business or sociology or psychology or religion so there's, there's a feast of free events and i've always participated in that because i i'm super curious i'm always trying to sort of drink from the fire hose of of knowledge out there uh often to the point of getting sort of mental indigestion and of course like many others i stumbled across jordan peterson back when he first started and both his eloquence, his passion, and him building or really imploring us to see see more deeply into psychology, mythology, religion, wisdom, that yes, we've got the rational world, but we need to draw from this other source to to synthesize, to see more holistically who we are and where we are and where we're going. I found that super compelling. And then I stumbled across your commentaries on 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 Jordan Peterson, and I mean Jordan is something to behold, that's for sure. And but your breakdown and analysis of his talks, I found so uh, amazing and so helpful. And obviously, my discovery of your channel uh, was, I think, just roundabout or just before COVID. So being locked down in COVID was the opportunity to feast on as much wisdom as i could go and once i discovered your channel and your ability to take complex ideas and break them down and really sort of be able to see through different frames of what was being spoken about here why is this important how does this match or sit with these ideas you were a, a, a constant companion of mine through uh, uh covid so spotting you in that McKilgrist event was like <laughs> you're the person who's been sat in my living room for <laughs> the last three or four years and there you are in, in in the flesh so I through the lot of work I've been doing especially on the big picture stuff which we we haven't talked so much about in, the, in this conversation I've, I've managed to grab some time with 
it's more sort of snatches of time with sort of uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger when he's been in the UK. And I've had some great conversations with uh, John Verbeke, who's kind of interested in the work that I'm doing. He's, yeah. although we haven't recorded any sessions, we've had yeah. a, a couple of long sessions. I was in Toronto last year and we had coffee and it was great to, to meet up and talk further with him. But he's very interested about how we cultivate wisdom and greater care for each other these which point something towards flourishing yeah. <laughs> how do we bring the the wisdom that he's imploring us to look at and and to, to take seriously and transpose that into institutional settings because i'm doing a lot of work chairing conferences and 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 working heavily deeply with with policymakers healthcare system leaders can we take that language and use that as a new frame to help the existing systems re re-understand or reimagine themselves yeah. with, with this toolkit? Because it, it's a way more powerful one of helping uh, organizations, businesses, and institutions understand themselves. They're kind of lost in an old model, the old sort of factory production, top-down, hierarchical, numbers-driven. That's so much part of the worldview that's captured their thinking, but imprisons their thinking also. And I sense more and more people are getting this sense that this old system doesn't work anymore. It's broken. But we don't know what the new is, and we're too nervous to step outside in case someone shoots us. Yeah. So can I sort of tend the flames, if you like, to kindle it a little bit and give people the language and some frameworks and some ideas from outside the system, because I've got the freedom to do that, yep. to encourage people to come out and see what something new might look like and give them the courage to, 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 to begin those experiments at the bottom and to reimagine at the top. So I've been doing a lot of work on, let's think about change, not just as bolting bits onto the old system or twiddling with the existing infrastructure we need to look further into the future we need to start to reimagine what we mean by health reimagine what we mean by education and then use that reimagination to work back what would need to be true for that what would need to be true what would need to be true and then we get to the current day and what's revealed is a pathway to something transcendent and better not just trying to squeeze more juice out of the current system and then when we take a step back and look at health, I mean, nearly 20% of the entire US GDP, nearly 20%, $4 trillion is spent on health. Really? Uh, yes. Nearly 20% of the entire US economy is spent on health. When you wow. look at levels of sickness in society, what the hell are we spending all that money on? There's got to be a better way. Yeah. Here in Europe, most of the countries are spending eight to ten percent of their GDP on on uh, healthcare. And if we keep doing more of the same with older populations, with more disease and more yeah. things described, yeah. with inflation going four to five percent on, the, we're going to double the cost of our healthcare systems in the next fifteen years, and it's going to bankrupt most countries. So even the economists and spreadsheet monkeys, yeah, <laughs> seeing like we got to do something different. Yeah. So. How is the time we've reached a point in humanity where we need to rethink the way we do things more fundamentally and that's part of part of what i'm trying to do yeah that is that is such a it's funny when i go to canada or europe and they talk about america of course they're 
for many of them, their image of America is sort of usually through a media lens. Mm. Um, you know, the, one of the things that they'll note is that, well, Americans don't necessarily, until you turn 65, you don't necessarily have a a health system now with uh, Obamacare or, you know, there, there's a little bit more of that. And of course, with the with the populations that I spend most of my time with offline, they are, um, you know, either they're getting their their medical benefits through their employer or um, this Obamacare system. Uh, some of them are on uh, Medi-Cal, which is sort of the government, um, the government program. And, you know, I, I often... It, I I also look at the system and think so much of it is is so backwards. Some people are just, you know, staying in certain jobs just so they can keep their their medical benefits because mm -hmm. they have certain things in their life that boy, if they lose this, they're they're done. And then I look at I, I look at these some of these seniors who are, I mean, I I can't imagine the. I can't imagine the medical bills that are just being, I mean, I, I've been very healthy all my life. I see the doctor, you know, I got a yearly physical, um, you know, I go to the dentist. I've, you know, never been hospitalized, um, you know, very low cost for, for my wife's insurance carrier. <laughs> um, but I, I look at these seniors and I think I I can absolutely not imagine the numbers on paper for these people. Mm. It, it's got to be, and, and especially because many of these people are, they worked for the state or they worked for retail. They've never had much money. The house that they live in, you know, they're shocked at the value of their house because they bought it for not much money 50, 70 years ago. And the numbers, the, the if they would actually see their medical bills, that they would just be absolutely floored because they've never seen anywhere near that much money in their life. But it's just kind of flowing through this system. <laughs> and you think, hmm, does this make any sense? <laughs> no, I mean, for us on this side of the Atlantic, looking at the U.S., it it it. it jars us to see the way that you that healthcare system has been built in the US. I mean here after the Second World War, when so much of the UK was either destroyed or its economy completely pulled apart by by the Second World War. And it was a, a joint effort by all the population, the sacrifice by everyone to come through the war at the the, the other end was something that represented a kind of new moment of reckoning of what kind of country do we want to rebuild out of this uh, Second World War. And one of the decisions made was that there are certain things that should be fundamental human rights, free education. Like if you deny people education or put a price on it, then you're going to take the poor out of that and then reinstitute you know, further sort of double down on, on the inability of the poor to break out of it. So free education for all and free health for all. Like health is a it's a right. Without health, you can't do anything. You're, you're yeah. kind of rude. So here in the in the UK, if there's there's no insurance, don't need any insurance at all. If you're sick, you go to the doctor. He'll find out what's wrong with you, and whatever you need, you'll get prescribed. If you need 
a scan or a, an operation, you go to a hospital, that will be done. It was all free. It's whatever your health needs is what needs to be done, not how much can you pay and can you afford it or not. So people stop going and then delay things to the last possible moment. Or And then what, what we see from the healthcare system in, in the US is that there's so many ways to make money out of sickness hmm. that the incentives are all working in the wrong way. It's hmm. like, if you're making money out of sickness, the last thing you want is wellness. That's taking your market away. <laughs> so there's hardly any investment in wellness. And you know, lo and behold, the American system costs $4 trillion a year. The rest of the world combined is $4 trillion a year, 20% of the GDP. And so when you look at that, you say, is American health better than European health? And when you look at, you know, you have some of the best hospitals and you've got yeah, the money yeah, yeah, we'll get yeah. some of the best stuff yeah. but for the majority of the population certainly for the poor no the, the health is service is worse and more expensive in terms of worse in terms of outcomes yeah for, and you think is this, is this just further entrenching suffering in the the elderly the elderly the the most disadvantaged which then because they can't get access to health and sets them back on their heels and makes it even more difficult. So this intergenerational transmission of more poverty and lack of ability to break out of the health is part of that. And another thing that was interesting stat that was re relayed to me recently was that in America, we always look across the pond enviously at the amount of innovation, the frontier spirit of America, they sort of Protestant, let's go out and create heaven on earth as, given birth to uh, Silicon Valley and all, all the sort of innovation that we associate with the US. But there was a, a stat out recently that says per head of population, when it comes to how many people will sort of quit their job and go and st start something up, and there's now more people per head of population starting things up in the UK than mm. the US. And the primary reason is I don't want to lose my health benefits. I believe it. I believe it. I want to go out on my own. That's... Yeah. It's a huge cost I've got to bear before I've figured out what my revenue stream. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay where I am. So yeah. one could even say it's curtailing or compressing the ability of the American economy to innovate. It's a, the ways in which health costs are, are impacting the health of American society. From whichever way you look at it, it doesn't look a good picture. And But the criticism, of course, is this is socialized medicine. This is yeah. like... This is a shadow of the, the the evil of Soviet thinking, but in in the UK it's seen as just humanity. Like, yeah. it's it's difficult. I I hear that critique often. It's difficult because in the US there seems to be if you're very poor, you can get medical care. Mm. If you're very wealthy. You can get, I mean, when Jordan Peterson's wife got sick and he's going to the best doctors in the world, they're not in Canada. Because if you're a doctor in Canada and you look over the border at how much you'll make in the American system instead of the Canadian system, doctors in Canada come to the U.S. And so Canada, you know, loses doctors. Um, so if you're very rich, you can have the best medical care in the world, best sickness care in the world, let's say it that yeah. way. If you're very poor, 
you basically, you can go into the hospital and they'll take care of you. There's a middle realm that I think you're, I think you're very right that, um, that part of, I think if, if a certain class of Americans were freed from concern mm. over their medical, uh, medical liabilities, let's say they, they would be more entrepreneurial Although at the same time, I also see a lot of what has happened in sort of that middle realm has been more insurance innovation in that there are there are more, let's say, very high deductible plans, which get your, I mean, it's just, it's, America is kind of crazy with respect to a lot of this stuff. It, um, and it's, but yet at the same time, I, you know, what we started, because I, I know we are going to trigger a lot of very interesting comments in the comment section, because Americans love to debate this stuff. Mm. <laughs> they love and they hate debating this stuff. And I don't necessarily want that to be the, that debate, the that no. debate to be the focus of this, because no. I very much would rather see the focus of our attempts to address our systems much more in line with what especially looking at the seniors because i'm i turned 60 this year and i hope to be an older senior someday um i very much would like to see a system that worked um worked more for health on a broad level yes than um than just so like i even see it in sacramento so God, boy i could get in trouble for this there are those who have, there are some people who really love Kaiser, but but and Kaiser really tries to try to control costs by you know all of these mechanisms. But then Kaiser is in competition with some of these other systems where I hear from people, yeah, if you got Kaiser, the only kind of medication you're gonna get will be generics. And if you go to the other systems, then your doctor will write the script for the newer uh anti-diabetes and you know so it's 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 a tremendously complex system that especially when you when when i look at it and i think part of what's at the center of this little corner is the inversion from let's say the monarchical vision from way high up that looks at statistics and masses of people instead through the eyes of one person and so as a pastor of a small church, I see the medical system through the eyes of, you know, 35 elderly seniors, and I sit down and I listen, hmm. going to the hospital. This is what happened. This is what they're doing. When can I get out? And in the back of their minds are, where are my kids? When am I going to see them? And they're worried about, you know, they spend their lives in the hospital worrying about their kids and their kids, of course, are worrying about them. But anyway, so uh, how shall we land the plane on this? Um, any takeaways or something you'd like to promote or say that we didn't really get a chance to or something you'd like to do? Um, well, a lot of what I've been saying might feel like pie in the sky. Um, nice aspirational thinking but you know, get real that's not how the world works and as i mentioned to you i'm starting to see green shoots of, mm. of new ways of thinking so i think there 
is cause for some optimism that even in our broken systems, there are people inside them who don't believe in what their systems are doing and are now seeking new and better ways of doing things. So I, I think there's an opportunity to encourage that. I'm also being recently invited by Imperial College, which is almost like the MIT of the UK, okay. to be a, a, a program director for their health innovation program, which is, and I've sort of redeveloped that to be looking at how do we go from thinking in lots of little silos to health systems with a view to flourishing being the sort of central aim that, around which we can think and act more systemically around the needs of real people in real communities. And Imperial have backed that. So I'm going to be delivering a program that's looking at that. And that's the first of its kind. So I think there's there's opportunities to arising to think bigger, to think better, and to for people to have the courage to have those conversations to if they're working inside organizations where the people feel imprisoned within the bureaucracy and the current worldview, there are other people likely inside your organization who feel as uncomfortable as you do. Yeah. Seek them out, talk to them. Uh, there's an opportunity, I think, from within inside the organizations to get a different conversation going and a transformation of organizational thinking from just maximizing profit to what are we really here for? <laughs> We're here because we're here to serve people in some way or another, whether it's the church or whether it's organizations or whether it's uh, public institutions or whether it's it's business. We created these institutions to serve us. And somewhere along the line, we've kind of drifted away and we've become self-interested. We've extract from those we serve instead of serving those who we're meant to serve. Yep. So I think there's an opportunity and is an important moment in history to be thinking about this because when AI lands, we're either going to double down on all of these old things or old approaches that we know do collective harm, or it's the time to wake up and think about what could creating value in the world look like? Why is it necessary? And how do we marshal the new technologies coming along in service of that? And if we don't do that, I fear for the kind of world we're building. Uh, and what will come out of it so it it i just give people to it to think about this deeply because it feels like an important moment in history for people to sort of step outside to check what they do and what their organization is doing and see are we really on the right path here is there a better way of doing things and if there are i'm sure there are other people like me uh and, and reach out have those discussions i think you'll find there's there's more interest from more people than you realize. And there's in there is the opportunity to possibly bring around change from the inside. That's a good note on which to land the plane. So thank you, Andy. I'm going to, I'm going to end the recording now, but um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come here and uh, stopping me at the McGilchrist um, lecture. And I thought this was, I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed this conversation and you've given me, I don't tend to have a lot of hope for a lot of these institutions, but you've given me some hope. So that's a good thing. Thank you. <laughs>